The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Our guest today is Sarah Rogerson, a professor at Albany Law School, the vice president of the the Niskiana School Board in upstate New York, and the aunt and mother in a family whose own members were victims of a school shooting and threats. After the Uvalde school shooting, Sarah Rogerson posted what she described as 800 of the most difficult words she ever wrote. She starts with this sentence, June is Gun Violence Awareness Month, and this year it will be observed at memorials and funerals as ripples of grief ravage a country bloated with weapons and battling common sense education and gun safety reforms. Since she wrote that, there has been more gun violence, but there also has been some gun reform. Today we're going to consider with Sarah Rogerson the steps that need to be taken by stakeholders, the parents, the educators, community leaders, and lawmakers to continue to curb gun violence. Sarah Rogerson is a clinical professor of law at Albany Law School. Her research interests focus on the intersections between domestic violence, family law, race, gender, international law, and immigration law and policy. Professor Rogerson joined out Albany Law School in 2011 after completing a two-year clinical teaching fellowship at University of Baltimore School of Law, where she taught and supervised students enrolled in the Immigration Rights Clinic. She holds an MA and JD degree from Seton Hall University and an LLM from Southern Methodist University. She's a regular contributor to WAMC Radio's The Roundtable. She has been a guest before on Psych Up Live. So, Sarah Rogerson, it is my privilege to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. Now, Sarah, as I implied in the introduction, You have had a very personal experience with school gun violence. I wondered if you could share that with us and also let us know how that informs your perspective now as a school official, as well as an attorney, a mom, a wife, an aunt. Sure. In November of uh, 2021, my sister's oldest son was um, a surviving victim of the Oxford, Michigan school shooting. Um, And it fundamentally altered the focus of our family, my parents, my sister, her husband, my nephews, um, my family, um, because we shifted into a difficult club um, that's unfortunately um, booming with members, and that is families who have been directly impacted by gun violence in America. Um, There are hundreds of people impacted every 
day in America by gun violence of one form or another, not just mass school shootings or mass shootings generally. Um, you know, we're most recently, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, uh, this becomes less common of an occurrence. But um, more recently, on the Fourth of July, uh, there there was a mass shooting at a parade. We see mass shootings in grocery stores in Buffalo, and um, you know, prior to it, it uh, to our family experiencing it more directly, um, it was on my radar as as a as a person who advocates for you know solutions to problems that we have in society generally, and as a as a lawyer and how it intersects with domestic violence. I had worked with, for example, police officers who are often first responders in domestic violence incidents and who are killed at a disproportionate rate when a when a firearm is involved. Right, so there are there are. This is an issue that has created a lot of unique allyships in a very sad way. And once we sort of um, found ourselves in the in the subsection of, of folks who have been directly impacted, it really turned up the volume on what we felt our role was in terms of being able to advocate and use it as an opportunity to, to speak from personal experience about the reforms that are necessary in order to stop this from happening to families as it does every day. Thousands of people a year are directly impacted by gun violence. And once you're personally impacted, I, could per- I, I understand it becomes an entirely different perspective because you, you've now been assaulted with this dilemma, this pandemic that the country faces. So now just recently, as you as I, and I communicated, uh, some gun reform bill did pass a bipartisan bill and was signed. And I just thought you are our expert today that we could take a look at it as the backdrop for our show. I just wanted to go down a few points because I wanted to clarify for myself and our listeners what actually um, we receive with this this bill. How will this bill help? One of the things they're going to provide with the bill is mental health services and school security initiatives. And does that mean more... Um, Social emotional learning, does it mean police in the building? What do you take that to mean? It could mean a lot of different things, and, and what's interesting from a federal perspective, and, and we'll talk about this because there are, there are things that can be done on every single level of government, from the federal government all the way down to your local city um, or municipality where you live, right? So, um, and even your school district, individual school districts can take action, right, within a municipality. So, um, from the federal perspective, what what I've read that means initially is um, additional funding towards grants that are largely administered through the Department of Justice um, that are awarded to school districts who are creating partnerships in their community with law enforcement and community mental health providers and um, other groups in the community that can provide support services to reduce violence in schools, including gun violence um, and including um, prevention efforts against mass shootings uh, in in the school environment. Um, And really what's, what's... 
really exciting about additional funding for those programs is that they've been around. It's just now more districts who are interested in innovating in this space and trying to see what works best in their community. And it's going to be different um, because something that's important to mention is that state by state, every each state has d- different sets of laws um, that, that regulate gun safety um, from very lax states that are actually passing laws to expand access and to reduce barriers to gun ownership to uh, states that have um, are implementing more best practices as we learn what actually works to curb gun violence from a gun safety perspective. So um, that particular provision of the federal bundle of, of, of laws, which is a starting point, a great starting point, you know, the first package passed in decades, Right um, to attempt to uh, to tackle gun violence in America, um, it's it's a start, and it's a great start from a school system perspective because more schools will be able to apply to federal funds, and the federal government in return gets grant reports that they can review and study for data and information about what's working in different communities and, and what what sort of programs might be effective for the next round of federal legislation, right, um, to be, if, if government works the way it's supposed to, um, you know, for more targeted approach uh, in order to continue to make progress on this issue year after year. Great. So, so possibly after school programs or programs that really focus in on the bullying, the social isolation, um, aggression or violence, those now will have a chance of being funded. The next um, point is one that I've been thinking about from from other from a different show that we did on the connection between um, the fact that most um, shooters, uh, mass shooters and school shooters were uh, males, but this one came up and that is the legislation expands criminal background checks for some gun buyers. Now the question is, does that mean I can still get away without a background check if I buy from a private seller? Am I only going to be covered and is someone going to demand a background check if I buy from a registered seller? Is there a loophole in there, Sarah, that is worrisome? So there may be. I'm not. I, I'm not as familiar with this provision. But in New York State, we also the, our governor also um, passed a, a bundle of gun laws just last week um, that would that involve things like closing the gun show loophole, where um, less regulated dealers in um, the selling of guns could get around certain background check provisions. There's also a big, I'm glad that the federal government is tackling this issue too, because the background check system is flawed as well and can be flawed because it really relies on, you know, humans not making errors when they're inputting information into a system, right? So, um, and, and which data which state level databases are feeding into the to um, the FBI background check systems there are lots of places where information can lapse or or not be accurate that can result in a firearm uh, being sold to someone who shouldn't have one and the more attention we can pay to the background check system its integrity 
um, and, and checking it to make sure that it's as comprehensive as it needs to be to actually prevent the thing from happening that it's supposed to prevent, right, which is firearms landing in the hands of of, um, of people who uh, are are purchasing it to commit a crime. Um, those those background, any attention that we can pay to tightening up those background check systems um, is helpful, useful, and really important in combating this problem. Okay. So that somehow relates to the red flag laws that I think people feel strongly about. And my question is going to be, the most recent shooter, this is for the parade in Highland Park, I think it is. So this yeah. young man was called to the attention of the police when he was suicidal. He was then called again to the um, attention of the police when he had knives and the family feared for their life. And at no point, I imagine then, and maybe the red flag law will change that. At no point did that flag him because he then was able to purchase an assault weapon. Now, he may have purchased it illegally. That I really don't know. But I thought if he purchased it from a gun seller who wasn't registered, there was no background check. And even if there was, were those, would those first two calls to the police have been noted as part of his background? So based on the information that's available as of the recording, as, as of as talking right now, it, it, it appears that he bought several firearms and that they were all purchased legally. So um, there's a lot of conversation happening at this moment about what, what information sh- should have been reported for a red flag law to trigger. Um, into what authority should it have been reported? You know, we're having, there's an issue in the state of New York with state police. We're saying we are filing as many red flag applications as we can because it's the police department in our state that, that files them in court and requests the order of protection to limit the the individual's access, right? And the problem was that the officers who were initiating the red flag process by filing, you know, their their facts in court were not represented by counsel and were not able to make sufficient evidentiary, um, you know, proofs in 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 a way that satisfied the court that the court felt like they had enough evidence to issue um, the order. Um, separating the individual from from the firearm. So, again, we have a situation where the law is only as good as we fund the enforcement mechanisms. Um, And the laws are also only as good as the enforcement mechanisms themselves are at making sure that the process runs the way that it's supposed to. We don't know enough about what happened in Illinois, and I don't know anything about Illinois' red flag laws on a state level, right? But certainly... Any red flag law to be effective is going to be need to be specific in terms of what's the evidence required in order for that to trigger, um, what what should the law say about that, and then how do we support law enforcement or whoever the requesting individual is um, for that red flag red flag law to to kick in. How do we support those individuals, make sure that they have representation of counsel so that the lawyers can make the case for why 
the individual should be separated from um, access to firearms. So mm-hmm. there, we're seeing a lot of um, laws being passed now after decades, decades of inaction, at least on the federal level, right? And so the, the next hurdle is going to be additional laws that we haven't gotten past yet, but also the implementation of what's, hap- of what's coming out now, right? Closing some of these loopholes, closing some of these possibilities that the best intentions can still yield um, additional violence if the systems themselves are flawed and, and not able to, to prevent the harm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it, the, the saddest part is to have people, for people to have seen signs and those signs are not used as a safety measure to, for the person as well as for the victims. In the interest of and time... The, excuse me, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, it's incredibly frustrating for law enforcement, too. If law enforcement is saying, you know, we're doing our job, we're raising these issues, and the court, for some, you know, is, is unable to, to issue the remedy and to actually give it teeth, you know, that's, that's incredibly frustrating. And the last one, and we're just about out of time for this segment, you already mentioned something important about, which is the domestic violence offenders. That group has to have background checks, or what is, what is, or does it bar a group of anyone identified as a domestic violence offender? Yeah, this is critical because it, it, um, it expands the, the, def- the, it closes what was known as the boyfriend loophole, but really it's a domestic partnership, right? So, like, what we're talking about is um, there, the, there is, uh, this was the actual key, the actual um, provision of the federal law that I was working with law enforcement on, and that's making sure that individuals who are convicted of misdemeanor or higher domestic violence offenses are not able to have firearms in their possession because we know that there's a link between domestic violence and um, lethality in terms of firearms. And so okay. it's making yeah. sure that it's not just husbands, but it's it's any domestic partner, um, including boyfriends. Okay. All right. We're going to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're so fortunate with here. we're here with Sarah Rogerson, professor at Albany Law School, the vice president of the Niskiana School Board in upstate New York. Her, her own family members were victims of a school shooting. And she's talking to us about curbing gun violence initiatives for all the, the players, community leaders, parents, teachers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It's time to get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson, the Midlife Whisperer. Your Midlife Roadmap is the blueprint you need to roll with change, transform yourself, and create a fabulous second adulthood. Get answers and solutions for whatever you're up against and transform problems into opportunities. Make your next life chapter your best chapter with Rock Your Midlife every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Sarah Rogerson, professor of Albany Law School, and she's talking to us about initiatives that parents, teachers, school boards uh, can really implement to make schools a safer place and overall to curb gun violence. Now, um, one of the things that I just mentioned to Sarah is as a psychologist, I wanted to share that from a psychological point of view, everywhere you look, you see a connection and a high correlation between bullying, stigma, humiliation in school, unrest at home, social isolation, and the violence of the school shooter. In the Violence Project, um, um, which is done by um, Jillian Peterson and James Dempsey, in setting 166 mass shooters, what they found is there's a buildup toward a period in which they start to make the plan to carry out a shooting. And at that point, their mental state is both homicidal and suicidal. It, it, it struck me when I read it that no school shooters have an escape plan. There is a desperate need to end things, but also to take people with them. So one of the places we're going to look at now, and uh, Sarah's going to share with is, so what can we do as school officials, as parents and community members? How can we interrupt the desperation of the school shooter? What comes to mind, Sarah? Well, so we've, we have been working as a country on this in, in terms of the Department of Education and, and other groups on a federal level um, really since Columbine um, in the 90s on developing threat assessments. And, and that's not to say profiling. We're not trying to profile individuals and say that some people are more likely to commit some sort of atrocity than others and therefore they must be handled differently. It's about creating a, a school climate that supports that provides behavioral supports to the whole student um, and each and every each and every student 
does better when we create school environments that are safe, supportive, healthy, um, and that are able to integrate um, dispute resolution mechanisms, um, early early identification of um, of emotional struggles in students to provide the supports and connect them with resources uh, that that maybe their family of origin is unable or unwilling to provide. Um, there are we really are asking too much of our schools to do this alone, though. Um, we, we don't fund the public school system at the levels that we should in order to basically uh, try to fill the, the gaps in the social support network nationally, right? We This is connected to um, the mental health crisis in this country, and our young people are feeling it acutely, particularly through and in the aftermath, uh, or I guess it would, that's still unfolding, of the pandemic, right, when we were combating not just learning loss, but a loss of the social, emotional supports and connections. Um, some students lost access for a period of time to maybe their only source of nourishment for the day, right? So we expect schools to to fill in all these gaps that we as a society haven't managed to fill. But that being said, um, there have been efforts over the last several decades to really fine-tune those threat assessment mechanisms to make sure that programs in the building are designed to support students. And increasingly, as mass shootings are on the rise, there are also unhelpful things that are that are springing up, like arming teachers or what's called hardening buildings or making them more, quote-unquote, secure. We know and we are learning that those things do not work. But what does is the social-emotional learning component, the threat assessments that have been that, – that the education department has been developing for years and years and years, and then making sure that those are implemented and funded, the personnel funded properly, in order to implement those and, and prevent tragedy. Um, it's so important what you're saying. And as you were talking, I was thinking about we talk more and more about social-emotional learning and as applying to the entire school environment – much less the community environment. And in my work as a psychologist for many, many years, I have had those people who've been bullied. But I've had many more people who were quite terrified or upset to witness the bullying, Sarah, and not know how at all to intervene. Um, that is the dilemma of the bystander who's in empathy with the victim but really does not know or feel safe enough to intervene. So, you know, we're dealing with, when we talk about social-emotional learning, this isn't identifying some child who we think has a problem. This involves an entire kindergarten class learning what feelings matter, names to feelings. It's an entire 12th grade class having a, a restorative justice court or discussing an incident that may have happened in the news and how people could talk about it and what feelings they have. I mean, I think people don't really understand how important the social-emotional learning is not only to interrupt the devastation of the future shooter, but of the other children in the building. Correct. Yeah, and it is both, right? It's both identifying if a student writes a poem 
um, in an English class that that demonstrates that they are deeply depressed and considering, you know, self-harm or acts of violence, certainly we want appropriate intervention strategies that don't further alienate that student, but we, and we want to give rally supports around them. But you're right. It's also about the learning environment overall and providing students with the tools in their toolbox to develop their own sense of empathy um, and, and to be able to process what they see happening to other other students and intervene in ways that are appropriate and don't and don't harm them vicariously right through the intervention process as well and there we're, we're the Sandy Hook Promise Foundation has uh, Sandy Hook Promise organization has a start with hello program it's called that is really designed for that to to walk or you know, young students through the process of reaching out to a fellow student who may exhibit signs that they're feeling isolated or um, bullied or um, disconnected from their peer group, um, not, not, not receiving the supports because there's so much more that can, there's so many different types of interactions that can happen peer to peer that will, that will never really be able to design in an adult to child relationship. Right. So it's about, it's sort of like an all hands on deck situation, including equipping our students to do that peer to peer outreach support. And increasingly, also, a lot of schools are implementing okay to say, um, which is one of several programs where students can anonymously sort of signal to school authorities that they think that a peer might be having a problem, and then the school authorities are able to do some outreach to that individual child and make sure, um, do an assessment and figure out if there's anything else that, that, the, that, the, that the school can do for that child. So there's, there are lots of programs that have developed in the wake of, of Sandy Hook, yet another tragedy, right, um, from the last decade, and uh, sadly, it takes these events occurring over and over and over again to capture the American imagination to say, yes, you know, we, we want to act and we want, our, we want our elected officials to act and we want to commit actual dollars and resources to these programs. And, you know, with these programs, to, to go back to Sandy Hook, which I love, these start with hello, small is big. So as you say, the children are taught to recognize loneliness and social isolation in a peer, to help the peer who may be lonely, and to learn ways to do that, and to overall develop an empathic community. I think when it becomes something that it happens, you know, in terms of giving them skills and there's the feeling I love the idea that someone could report somewhere to um, uh, an official, a guidance council, that someone's suffering. Uh, Maureen Underwood had a program where she developed Buddy Care, which is go with your friend to the guidance. If your friend is upset and you don't think they can go alone, go with them. Be the mm-hmm. spokesman for that person. That is the thing that we miss when these programs are criticized is the empowerment of being able to be the helpful bystander. There was Absolutely. A- Empa- yeah, empathy and empowerment are, are, the, are two of the tools in the toolbox, right, too. And, and those are tools, how many adults do we know that could benefit from a refresher course on those, on those tools, right? They're, they're life skills, just as important as reading and writing and arithmetic right we they are 
basic and fundamental to the human experience. And so the idea that there's somehow extra or soft skills, as they've been called in the past, is just not it's just not accurate, right? They're, they're fundamental building blocks to having healthy adult relationships and a functioning society that is centered on taking care of each other, which has the lovely byproduct of reducing violence, all sorts of violence, not just gun violence. Right. It's interesting. People who have some criticism of social-emotional learning, say it's going to get in the way of academics. And it's. An, I want to read something you sent me in terms of findings that um, when they compared for the Cassell program, which has four core competencies, self-awareness, understanding your emotions and thoughts, self-management, responsible decision-making, social awareness, and relationship skills, when they did extensive research and did a meta-analysis of 213 studies, what it showed was things like improvement in standardized academic test scores by 11 points for the students who had received the social-emotional program compared to those who did not receive it. In addition, there were reduced problem, um, they reduced problem behaviors, conduct problems, drug use, violence. So doesn't it make sense that if we teach children how to regulate their own feelings, how to have the empowerment to help other children, they have a better capacity to learn because they're not in a state of fight-flight. They're not anxious themselves. I'm so glad you lifted that up. Yeah, what we're learning from brain science also dovetails with what we're learning in the classroom about what works, right? When, when, you're, when your perceived threat assessment as an individual, when you feel safer, I'll use plain English, right? When you feel safer, you can focus better, right? And, and that's something that we all know to be true, but now we have science to back it up, that the social-emotional learning actually improves academic performance just for the reasons you said. It reduces the perceived threat to personal safety. When students, there, there are many students in this country that that don't feel safe anywhere but at school. And so how are they supposed to learn if that continuation of of threat and and fear follows them into that learning space, right? Mm -hmm. In some communities, schools can be the oasis away from the threats that they experience elsewhere in the world. It was once a film about a school shooting and one little girl who, for whom school was exactly what you said, it was a teenage girl. Um, so the shooting happens. She's terribly dysregulated and upset. But, of course, she, home is worse. So she goes to school the day after, but the school is closed. And you see the panic she has because that was her safe place. So, you know, just exactly what you're saying is true. We have to remember socially, emotionally, intellectually, the schools very much play a role. This is the world that the child, you know, really belongs to. As you say, the pandemic really threw a curve into that for many children. And now that that we're back, we've got to make the best of that world for them. Right. Another... You know, this even applies to sports. I know you have sons, and I have sons who played basketball right through college. And at the high school games, I would see the coach screaming at them. And I would say to my husband, well, they're not going back in. 
you're not going to do okay. And he'd say, why? And I said, because they're dysregulated now. He just upset them all. He didn't, con- he didn't calm them down or review the play. He upset them all. And I, I used to tell people, I'm going to write a book called Broken Hearts, Broken Bones, because the competitiveness and the bullying, even by some of the coaches, other coaches were angels. They shepherd kids all the way through. They're the good guy. But that's not always true. So we have to look at the whole school in terms of benefiting from social-emotional learning. Absolutely. And I mean, so many coaches are volunteering their time and are engaged in other professions and aren't trained educators, right? And so I'm hopeful that some of the gains that we've already seen in the education space can translate into athletic uh, competition and performance because we know that that's another another segment that is just sort of um, rife with these um, messages really of toxic masculinity that are not helpful and it's an, it's another it's another place where you know I, I think we're learning that the that the more supportive environments are the ones that actually lead to better athletic performance as well. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it translates across many different sectors and maybe even in the workplace um, at, at some point. I, I know that there are consultants that already work with employers on this, but if you're not in an environment where that's the case, th- these really are skills for, for life. Well, we're going to have to take a break, but we did have a guest who was all about how to give feedback in the workplace. And she said, if you come in yelling, they don't hear a thing you say after that dialogue. And I think that that's probably true in, in every case. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Sarah Rogerson. She's a professor at Albany Law School, vice president of this Niskiana School Board in upstate New York the aunt and mother in a family whose own members were victims of a school shooting and threats. Stay with us. Much more to come. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that millions of people around the world do not have children? And yet the personal and professional experiences of people without children remain largely unacknowledged across cultures and within our personal networks. Public and workplace policies, media narratives, and educational content often reflect an unconscious bias, rendering our experiences invisible. New Legacy Radio engages these missing conversations with the voices of our community and allies and through committed action for meaningful change. New Legacy Radio, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. 
Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. I'm here with Sarah Rogerson, professor at Albany Law School, and we've been talking about curbing gun violence by giving tools to children in school, by giving tools to parents, community members. How do we make for safe environments where people feel empowered to take care of each other and people feel that if they don't have another place that's safe, at least school is safe? And what we want to talk about a little bit here is if I'm a parent you know, we all know that the news is good and bad, and it's nonstop. Um, but how would I decipher if they're going to start a program with all the funding that may come from the new gun bill in my child's school? Should I be frightened about it? Should I think it's going to be indoctrinating them in some political perspective? How would I know that it's a safe thing for me to let my children participate in? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned the CASEL framework, and that's C-A-S-E-L dot org. Um, it's one of a number of organizations that are really rigorous about the science of social-emotional learning, um, and it debunk you know, on their website, they, they debunk a lot of myths that are really being pumped out there deliberately in order to make, in order to, to plant seeds of fear in parents that then manifest themselves as parental resistance to social-emotional learning based on total misinformation that somehow your child, your individual child, will be disadvantaged by this. Um, Typically, it's white parents and white families who are targeted with this misinformation to say, you know, we don't want your children to succeed the way that we want all children to succeed. And it's just not true. That's not the purpose of social-emotional learning. It, it, it lifts up each and every student just as properly implemented diversity, equity, and inclusion programs lift up every student and give, give each student a greater opportunity to succeed to their best capacity and to their achievement level, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a trade-off of one student to another. And anytime you, as a parent, hear someone trying to say that this is a political strategy, it's rooted in one of those fundamental misinformation campaigns. And so going to, pl- to reputable places of information like Castle, the, the, the developers of the Castle Standards that are rooted in science about achievement and supporting each student in, in academic achievement through social-emotional supports, that's where you look to debunk those myths because it's based in the science that we know to be true and in studies. 
And we, we even mentioned earlier in the show the 11 percentile points that were higher in terms of academics for the children who had been part of that program. The other thing when we think about community is the question of, do we need police in the schools? Is that a pro or a con? Does it put the police in a difficult situation? What's your perspective? We definitely are seeing reports. There was there was one recently published um, just in the Hudson Valley in New York, in the state where I live, that, that is a study that shows that, that school resource officers are having police actually physically stationed in the schools often do more harm than good. But that's not to say that we should not be in partnership with law enforcement. We absolutely should have law enforcement at the table. They are a critical partner in, in making sure that, that schools are safe from multiple perspectives, balanced against student privacy. Um, and in a lot of communities, what we're seeing that look like is not necessarily an officer in the school, although that might work for some in some rural communities um, if done correctly and if focused not on the law enforcement aspect but on the community support aspect, right, and the threat assessment and making sure that students have additional adults in the building to talk to that they trust, that they have relationships with. That's a very different model than the traditional school resource officer that we see. Um, but our law enforcement partners are trained and have continuing education in threat reduction in, in departments that are valuing that as a core ethic, right? Which is, I should say, not all police departments in America. But when, when, you're, when you're looking across your community, it's important. We've engaged um, lo- local law enforcement in, in conversations in the Capital District of New York around these issues because they bring that perspective of how to create safe spaces um, in, in ways that, you know, educators may not think of. And, and then the educators, you know, can speak to law enforcement about what works in their classroom um, and and. and it's a conversation among multiple community stakeholders that also should involve mental health supports and, and mental health experts who can also add their um, expertise, even, even architects, right, and, and people who are tasked with designing spaces that, that make people feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, even a capital project uh, that that's meant to to transform what the buildings look like, the the color of paint on the walls, things like that. We need every single professional in the room, in every single capacity, in every single community to be involved in these conversations in order to create these environments. What what I hear you saying is we can't just focus on who's going to have the gun to shoot back when the shooter shows up. But rather, we've got to look at all that precedes this in terms of children feeling safe in school, of leaving nobody behind, of not uh, ignoring social isolation, of watching to see, is this a school setting where people are bullied if they are LGBTQ youngsters or if they're not one of the jocks? So that the focus has to be on all the elements that build to the breaking point for shooters, and also give so much in the process. 100%. I mean, the, the discussion around arming teachers and clear backpacks and metal detectors are, uh, we are, are not helpful. 
Those are, <laughs> and in fact, they're harmful ultimately for students of color. There are some communities where having school resource officers in the building doesn't make anyone feel safer and often has a disparate impact on the discipline against students of color. So we have to have a more sophisticated conversation. I know there are many partners in law enforcement who are having more sophisticated conversations beyond the good guy with a gun you know, rhetoric that has been pitched around by um, politicians. It doesn't work that way. And we saw that in, in Buffalo, New York, in the, um, the shooting at Topps Grocery Store, where there was an armed guard who was, who was trying to defend this, the, the patrons against this racist shooter um, who was on a, on a racist mission explicitly. And, and, and wasn't able to pr- protect people um, because the shooter had body armor, right? So it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's not, not going to work to meet violence with violence. It just doesn't work, even if it's a, on a defensive stance. We have to dig into these root causes and really get to a point where we're putting more of our energy into preventing the individual shooter from forming the intent to harm um, which is really rooted in, as we're learning, um, a self-loathing and self-hatred. Yes, yes. It's, it's really suicidal on some level. Um, that's beautifully said, beautifully said. I think the other thing that, um, the other concept uh, to, that I wanted to bring up is one I, I came upon, and it's Mattering by Gordon Flett. And I think Mattering is the opposite of feeling social isolation, self-hate, self-loathing, and that is even involvement by the community. I mean, some schools already have things like this where cores of kids also give back. They rake senior citizens' lawns. They help at school pantry, at um, at parish pantries um, for giving out food to the poor. That is, the more we involve school and community and the more the community gets creative about how to make kids feel they matter and how to make people in the community feel they matter i think we increase safety sarah oh 100% and we in in the case of school shootings in particular just really quickly we know that statistically most of those shooting, the perpetrators in those shootings have some connection with the school, either former students um, or current students. In the case of, of my nephew's case, he was shot by a fellow student. So the idea of hardening buildings or hardening anything isn't going to work. It's exactly what you're talking about is mattering in, in lieu of hardening because you, when, when the problem is inside the building always, yes. it, it, you can harden all you want and it's still not going to prevent harm from occurring. Okay. I want us, Sarah, you've been wonderful today, and I want to give you a minute to take, to, to pass on a, a take-home message and to tell people where they can find your, your very important essay, the 300-word essay. Sure. So my take-home message is that we can't be afraid to have conversations about our feelings and about talking about how to support um, each other, our children, certainly, um, and to not be afraid of social-emotional learning and diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are programs that lift all boats. We can't allow politics to come in and divide us for self-interested purposes of elections. That has 
very little to do with the day-to-day in, in our children's lives and in the lives of gun violence victims. So we have to focus on local solutions, um, neighborhood-to-neighborhood, community-to-community, and come together. Uh, because the the guns and the people who are shooting them do not discriminate based on political affiliation. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, Except in explicitly racially attack, racially motivated attacks, of course. And then to, to read more about this and to read more about some of the links that we mentioned, um, where um, you can find the words that I wrote, it's at the Education Week publication, edweek.org, um, published on June 8th, 2022. It's still up on the website. Um, and it, it, in addition to, to my words, you don't have to, to take it from me. You can click on the links and see the science behind what I'm saying um, based on the very personal experience that my family is, continues to live through, um, remembering that if we don't act to prevent these things from happening, we're going to be dealing with the psychological impact for years and years and years at a much larger scale. So prevention um, saves us a lot of terror and, and money and time if we all work together. Sarah, I want to thank you for both your personal message and your personal and professional efforts to make schools safer, to curb gun violence, and to raise our consciousness on all li- different levels as to how everyone can play a part, really, in making this a less violent country. Um, thank you again for joining me on Psych Up Live, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Okay, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast by 6 p.m. tonight on my host site, my website, and on all the platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon Audible, Spotify. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.